Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller. I serve as your interviewer and host each week, our third year in the On Leadership podcast world, over 175 interviews, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to leadership. And several months ago, the HarperCollins Publishing Company worked with me to release our first book based on the podcast called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. I had the privilege, the honor, the weight of selecting 30 early interviews and writing a different chapter about each of the first 30 guests and have published this book now available for Amazon. There'll be multiple volumes in Master Mentors. Perhaps even today's guest might agree to be a Master Mentor featured in a future volume. Pick up a copy on Amazon of Master Mentors. Now today's guest is a business phenom. You know her as a former CEO of Xerox. She is the author of the new book, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. But perhaps as importantly, she serves on the boards of, get this, Uber, ExxonMobil, Nestle, MIT, Mayo Clinic, Ford Foundation, and numerous other not-for-profit and for-profit boards. Ursula Burns, welcome today to On Leadership. Thank you, Scott. I am so pleased uh, to be here. I'm a massive fan of Franklin Covering, so this is an honor for me as well. Well, thank you for the endorsement. We are fans as well. Dr. Covey was, of course, a colleague and friend of ours. You knew him as well, and we appreciate your support coming on our podcast. Ursula, we have a short time with you today because your book has just launched and you are back-to-back on interviews and speaking engagements. We're privileged that you chose to put us into your packed roster. First, let's talk about the title of the book, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Talk about why you named it that. So it's where you are is not who you are. And remember that when you're rich and famous. That was one of my mother's most um, enduring and funny uh, uh, phrases that she showered on my brother and my sister and I. And I, I chose that for the book because I thought that the tail, the tagline was part of the magic of my mother. The beginning is, of course, great. Where you are is not who you are. We grew up in a in a very, very bad neighborhood, very, very bad building, you know, drug infested, definitely dirty, um, gang uh, infested neighborhood on the Lower East Side of New York City before it was cool, right? This was Alphabet City when it was really bad. And so my mother would always remind us that this place, this environment that we were in was the circumstance that we were in, we were, we was in at the time. But that circumstance and that environment was not who we were. Who we were was were people who were studious, hardworking, who were clean, who was organized, who were kind to others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she put on the end, and remember that when you were rich and famous, it was like the aspirational statement. She had no idea about fame or riches. <laughs> she had no idea about this. Closest thing she got to fame is like a movie star. That was it on TV. But she didn't know about that in the business context, you know, none of that stuff. So the fact that she put it on at the end was aspirational. I believe that you will do something great with your life. And when you do something great with your life and you transpose yourself out of this position and you see people who are in this position, remember where you remember that those people are not the neighborhood, mm. their neighborhood. Those people are not necessarily dirty because their neighborhood is, di- is dirty, et cetera, et cetera. Ursula, you have many roles in life. 
you have accomplished amazing things. You are perhaps, maybe to your chagrin, best known as being the first black female CEO of a Fortune 500 company. In fact, you write about that in the book in some struggle around why is that so unusual? Why is that such an important idea in and of itself? Uh, show some vulnerability as you did in the book and talk about you know the struggle of that being kind of the big spotlight. Why was that such a big deal to everyone? Yeah, it, it's so the question is a great question and it's one of the major um, points in the book. It's also the major one of the major points in my life, obviously, which is why it lands so clear and strongly and centrally in the book. And it comes from two or three aspects. The first is I've I've always been black and I've always been a female and I've I don't have a context outside of that. So when I pursued whatever I was pursuing, I did it on the same basis that a white person would pursue it. It was what I was interested in. It was what would make money, whatever those those attributes were. But the way that it was received from the people who saw me was more about the spectacularness of the accomplishments because it was me, if you know what I mean. So the number of people who were in school getting their BS degrees in mechanical engineering and their master's degrees in mechanical engineering and going to work in a, in the, in a corporation doing engineering every year are significantly more than me. The number of people who made it to CEO, obviously, in 500, Fortune 500, there are 499 other CEOs. But when I became CEO, it was not that, um, how did Xerox do this? Or how did we, how did, how did, let me give you a lesson on how you can increase diversity um, or inclusion to allow more people to actually ascend in your company. It was more done from the, can you believe it? Can you believe that one of these people made it? And my point was, of course I would have made it because, or somebody like me, I studied like you did, had results like you did, I had jobs like you did. You guys made it, what wouldn't make it impossible for me to make it? The reason why that's an important discussion, and I'm gonna stop, is because there is a reason outside of all of the qualifications, same education, same uh, summer experiences, same jobs, same, 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 same commissions, task force, whatever the heck. And more of those guys make it than we make it. Actually, none of us make it. None of the people who look like me until me made it. The point was more about that issue. Why is it that so few that look like me make it and so many that look like um, the other me person, me, yeah, like you make it. That was more the debate. That should have been more the debate versus my God. Look at this spectacular human being who you know leaped a tall building in a single bound. I didn't. I didn't. Scott. I mean, literally, I I went to work every day. I went to college every day. I got reasonably good grades. I was a very good student, but I wasn't the. I didn't get straight A's in in college. I didn't do anything abnormal except for what they did. And what they did was standard for them, but not was not allowed to be standard for me or people who look like me. Ursula, the book is lovely, writ lovely written. I, um, I felt like I was in your living room and you were telling me your story. It's very casual, it's very vulnerable, it's very honest. It's your story, it's your journey. In fact, I, I don't wanna misquote you, but you talk a lot about race and the race and the role that race has played in your education, in your career, in your life. You talk about how um, you know you basically live in my world, and I don't live in your world. You talked about how much much of the world is people like me, you know, white Caucasian man in my fifties that may or may not ever have much encounter 
with your world. Can you kind of expand on that and maybe bring light to the millions of people that look like me, regardless of gender, the insight that I gained from that is I never thought about, I never thought about the two different worlds we lived in. I just lived in my world and you're sometimes in my world, but you brought a big epiphany to me by the fact that we live in two different worlds. Yeah, we do. And I, I have the benefit in my life of being able to walk between the two every day. Um, it's, it's actually a privilege and an honor, not a pain or a negative. It's really, it's a real, it's really unfortunate that more people like you, Scott, don't get to go to the other world. It's not totally dirty, it's not unsafe. It's just full of people who have different experiences, different interests sometimes, different musical tastes. It's just a different part of the world. White America, white UK, England as well, by the way, and I'm sure there are other countries, um, but I know those two fairly well literally can particularly white men but white women too can live their whole day get up in the morning get in their car go through the and they will only see people that they that serve them they have to serve them or very far away in passing um people of color they you don't have to interact with them this is latinx people black people you just don't have to talk to them at all you don't have to and if you do you're in a power of you're in a position of power or control Black people literally don't have the other option. They don't have that option. I don't know if they would choose it if they did, but they don't have the option of living only in their world. They live physically there, but every single, a large number of the interactions they have by mandate design structure of society are with or is with um, white people, white men positions of authority, um, your doctors, who's going to be your dentist, um, the person who collects your rent, <laughs> whoever it is, the person you go to the um, to pick up your check, wherever that is. There's a whole environment built where we're not engaged unless we are ser uh, asking for services or giving service, right? Those are the, and white people have a different a different set of options. I when when I got more senior in the company and earned a lot more money, I moved out to Connecticut. Um, primarily because New York City taxes were too high, but I all, and it was close to my job as well. I moved out to Connecticut and it was absolutely amazing. I lived in New Canaan and I literally could go a day or on a weekend, Saturday in New Canaan and see no, literally zero white people. I mean, zero black people, zero. Zero black people, zero Hispanics. During the week, I saw a lot of Hispanics doing the lawns and whatever, but in New Canaan, I could go the whole weekend and not see anybody of color. In New York City, in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it's impossible to do. By the way, in just about any neighborhood, it's impossible to do. Um, so I just think it's important that you and people like you get some familiar familiarity with people like me, not in your world only, but in the world, if you know what I mean. Not a curated world where everything has been pushed aside and we've built this great Greenwich or this great New Canaan or whatever the heck in the Upper East Side. Not there, but just in the world. And you'll find that these people are, they have ambitions, they love their children, um, they, they actually are interesting, uh, they have many different shades, et cetera, et cetera. So they go to school like everybody else does, but there's no, there's very little crossover for you to be able to gain an appreciation for other people. 
Ursula beautifully, beautifully said, I want to move on to parts of the book beyond race, but it's a, it's a, it's a central you know, theme in your life, obviously, and in your, your um, rise in corporate America. Uh, your mother's from Panama, and you mentioned some beautiful stories of your mother's work ethic, single mother, and her struggles coming as an immigrant to the U.S., and you talk about shades just now. You also mentioned that you know, racism exists even in the black community based on the race of your skin. Talk a bit about the, some of the prejudices that your mother faced um, as an immigrant to America. I mean, it, racism, I don't know if this is good or bad, it's real, I know that, exists in black society, the dark, particularly historically, now it's probably getting a little bit better, just like it is across the board. But literally, when my mother was growing up, she was growing, she grew up in Panama, she was a black, she was the dark, she had a dark skin tone, her sister had a lighter skin, lighter skin tone. And she, my sister's, my mother's sister, my aunt, was absolutely distinguished in a positive way, not only in society, but in certain parts of the family, because she was lighter than my mother. And she had a different hair texture than my mother. She looked more white than my mother. And uh, we see this throughout um, black and brown society. You know, in the, when, when James Brown came out with his, with his song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, that was an a, a anthem not only for blacks to whites, it was for blacks to blacks. Yeah. You know, yeah. that, that literally, you, can't, you, are, you are a beautiful black person even if you are a black black person versus a more white looking black person. So it, there's a whole bunch of structures. It's very visual. The thing I like about um, the way that, the thing I like and dislike about race is that if you're um, Italian or I, I don't I don't know you can actually change your accent you can even change your name and pass for somebody else pass for an American quote unquote this broad based American one thing and one of the reasons why I think blacks around the world but definitely in America suffer so continuously through society so has suffered so continuously through society is we are unavoidable. Literally, we, it, you can try your best, but if you're a black person, you are black. Maybe lighter skinned or darker skinned, but you're black. And this, this, this shock visually is something that we're just getting America, white America is just getting used to. When I say shock, they're not shocked to see me or my son or my daughter or my, my husband when he was alive. It's not shock like, oh. it's more shock like, I know what to expect from you. And when you don't do what I think you're supposed to do, particularly if you're a black man, which is be slovenly, be slow, not that intelligent, be good at sports, whatever the whatever these biases are, that's the shock. So literally, it's you know judged by the content my, of my character versus the color of my skin. This statement is something that Americans, people around the world, have to actually really take to heart. I want you to notice the color of my skin because that is part of who I am. But I do not want you to judge me by the color of my skin, right? And if you do, please judge me positively because that's that's a bias that I would prefer. But that's not the way we're judged today, particularly black men. Ursula, let's pivot for a moment to some of the leadership conversations in the book that you share with us. You know, you were at Xerox for 29 years. This was like no overnight sensation, right? I mean, you are the product of, 
a lot of decades of toiling and dedication and loyalty at great education, great work ethic. You've been promoted, obviously, based on your contribution and merit. And when you became the CEO, you, of course, were the first black female CEO in the country's history uh, in America of a Fortune 500. You mentioned that you never kind of felt like you fit in to that Fortune 500 CEO group. No one ostracized you, but there was... Uh, uh, a palpable difference between you and the other, as you call them, 499. What was that like for you? Was it awkward? Was it, was it, did people try to friend you? What was that like being in that kind of exclusive group? Yeah, I think the one thing that was positive about it, very, very positive about it, is that the CEO group was being, how do I say, entering the CEO group was a stronger credential for entering than race or anything else, if you know what I mean. So once I got in, it was, we were just all part of the same group. We were all kind of sitting around dealing with the same problems, the same, you know, the same everything. <laughs> Thousands of employees, government regulation, you know, you name it, unions, etc. The thing that was different, though, is that, the, and we did become casual, please. I, I mean, some of my best friends to this day are white CEOs, actually really really good friends, white CEOs. The thing that was different was that the casual portion of the CEO life that you talk about, like in any industry or any sector or any position, I was not, I did not participate in. When I say I didn't participate in it, I didn't have a context or even a desire to kind of do that kind of thing. I didn't fit into the you know, let's go drink in the XYZ after, let's, you know, I'll see you in Aspen later or whatever, you know, some of that's stereotypical, but you get the drift, right? That there's a whole bunch of activities and common places of gathering and interest type of music uh, um, that I literally, it, it, it's existed since I was born, right? I went to a, I went to, when I came to work at Xerox, it was a very similar, you know, I would drive, next to people and they would be listening to country western music not that that's bad this is not something i ever really um listened to and paid attention and i would be listening to, to um you know to jazz or to you know the soul uh station that's it's kind of a funny categorization but when you become a, a member of a club that's as small as the ceo club you realize how that thank goodness you know that there is a ceo club but even in that club i'm a unbelievable minority uh, you know we unbelievable minority and the fact that i was black and a female female also a, a significant amount of difference in the ceo club i mean maybe they were 15 at that time uh is it it just you just don't ever really kind of belong fully in the club and that's by the way i think that's true for just about anyone with significant difference from the majority you just don't you don't fit in i've always been extremely comfortable not being fully accepted. I've been extremely comfortable having a little bit of foot on the outside. Not because, you know, and I even think about it all the time that I'm not fitting there, but I I needed space to be in this other world that was key and core to me with my girlfriends in my my old neighborhood in places that I literally can just let down my collar and hang out deeply in what I call black society, certain type of a certain language, a certain kind of feeling that that's all part of who I am. It's not necessarily part of who they are. They are. And since I'm such a minority that a lot of them just don't get it. So it's okay. I don't, I don't want them to all get it. I want them to understand that it, it exists. I don't want them to all get it. And I 
can't leave that behind because that's part of what fuels me as well. You know, fuels the joy in my soul as well. So I don't think I don't want to say that as if all the white CEOs who were men were like, no, they didn't ostracize. They were my best colleagues, helped me unconditionally. But it damn sure was different. I didn't I was not where they were. Ursula, uh, reorient our listeners and viewers to the Xerox story, right? This is obviously decades, if not 100 years long. But Xerox went through some very tumultuous times. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to talk about and recreate the conversation about Anne's request for you to reduce you know, costs by $2 billion in the union discussion. Save that for a moment. But give us kind of a, a primer on the history of Xerox, the big struggles, and where they are now. Yeah, I don't know where they are now, where, where they are when I left. I make it a point to not actually spend a whole lot of time thinking about Xerox after I left it. Same thing like when I left Vion, I don't spend a lot of time looking back. But um, I joined Xerox during one of the most tumultuous times of its history, 1980. We were firing tens of thousands of people. This was right after, you know, we had invented this amazing technology that changed the way work was done, literally changed the way work was done. And it was our proprietary technology. We had a decree by the consent, the consent by the Defense Department, uh, the State Department, or the Commerce Department, or whoever it is, the U.S. government, that we were essentially a, monor- a monopoly. So we have to actually open up our secrets to other companies, which we did, and uh, that was Xerox number two. And I joined. Um, in 1980, after we were really getting battered by one of the people that we opened up, one of the groups that we opened up our technology to, which happened to be a whole bunch of Japanese companies, Rico, Canon, uh, Konica, Minolta, these Konica and Minolta, which were two companies, and all were ca- Japanese companies. I, th- I think the thought was that we would open this up and U.S. companies would would, would create other U.S. competition, which never really took, took um, hold at that time. So that's crisis number one. We come out of firing. I'm hired. I'm one of the few people hired in that year. The good news about that is I had a lot of opportunity. Right. <laughs> it's like, do work. I, you know, we're, we're, we need help. That's crisis number one. We were running away from, running uh, towards st- stabilizing the company away from being a monopoly. And throughout Xerox's history, I'd say every seven to 10 years from that point on, we ran into another crisis, one crisis or another. The first couple would, were um, from technology transitions, right? An onslaught of, first was onslaught of competition from outside the United States. The second was literally technology transitions where you know, everybody started to use, to not print bills. Before we got these things in our hands, we had these computers on our desk, we used to, we we are the biggest bill printer in the in, in the world. Xerox, that's what Xerox. All those bills that you got, you know, the American Express bill, the Mastercard bill, your all of these bills were printed on Xerox technology. And throughout the '90s, we were taught properly so that why are you printing all of this stuff down? It came in the mail. We stuffed it. We sorted it. Came in the mail. We wanted others. We actually all that printing basically went away. Uh, literally dropped by double-digit percentage points, years over years over years. That was a big profit pool for us. We figured out a new business then. We fixed, we said we're going to print in color, high fidelity color fast. Do that, next technology change. We go from um, color, we go from printing our photographs in color or printing anything in color, and now we don't print anything because it's all stored. 
then we went to photographs. You know, you, we did. We took off that dye sublimation. You know, that messy process. And now, if you want something from Shutterfly, for example, it's done on the Xerox machine. Then nobody printed because you had them on these digital frames or on your handheld device. So throughout our time, we were always kind of reinventing ourselves to become more and more relevant to consumers so that the company could continue to at least grow revenue. By the time I took over, and I, and I lived through that. You know, I, that's how I worked. That's how I got a lot of opportunities, by just literally being engaged in the next crisis, the next crisis, the next crisis. Some of those crises were, by the way, in, in, instilled by us. We did it ourselves. We screwed up the reorganization of the sales force. We had to kind of fix that. A lot of it was from the outside as well. By the time I took over, we had just come out of a crisis, entering another one. That right? we came out of um, a, a liquidity crisis caused by the man, just by a big mess inside the company mismanagement, and we actually entered into a different crisis, which was a financial crisis. Right, the world had taken a dive. We had 9/11 when it happened that passed, and then we had the banking crisis that really, so on, so on, so on. I become CEO. We're stabilized. We at least have enough money to pay our bills and had done an amazing job there. We had a reasonably good management team, an amazing job there, and we had a good board. So a really good job there, but we still were running towards relevance or running away from irrelevance. And one of the things that I, the board and and but me as the, I was president first and then CEO was tasked, which was tasked with was to try to figure out a way to stabilize the company. Try to and create a future for it, right? To make sure that it was relevant, and that was our our foray and move into services. We started with document services where we manage your office infrastructure. We got some document intensive business services under our, our under our bailiwick, and we applied technology to automate those services. Like if you look at if you buy a house, the mortgage documentation, you know, stacks and stacks and stacks of these papers and during the banking disaster, we realized, not we, Xerox, but the world realized that this paper process didn't work well because they couldn't even trace it back to who owned what. So putting technology, um, what now you would call machine learning and AI, it was early machine learning and AI to automating those business processes. The same thing with legal discovery. Get all these people in a room and try to redact every word that has to do with XYZ. We can do that automatically. So we brought some businesses there had our document outsourcing business. And then right when I was taking over, we made the decision to buy a very large um, business process outsourcing company called ACS. And then from there, we you know did that. We cleaned it up because it, it was a kind of a messy company, sold some pieces of it, restructured it, reoriented it, had some parts of the business that were just not that great. Um, we had a health service sector that was, was always difficult. And we um, eventually kept, we, we bought it, broke it up into some other different pieces and then created a new, separated again, created a new Xerox and a new company that we, we call Conduit. Uh, so that was, that was my journey. At the end of that journey, and that was Xerox's journey and my journey because as a CEO, there's very little difference. At the end of that journey, we got Mr. Icon into our um, company stock as an activist and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the recap. I believe you share a story in the book when you were the president and Mulcahy was the CEO. You all were facing uh, perhaps dire straits. I think you wrote maybe 18 months left before like bankruptcy was a very viable option. 
Uh, and you, I think, share the story where Anne says to you, in a very kind of directed fashion, go find $2 billion of savings. Yeah, I, I, you asked that earlier and I should have answered yeah. it. Yeah. No, please talk Anne about that and the role that the union negotiation played in yeah, that. It's yeah. a fascinating story in the book. Yeah, Anne, Anne was one of the best leaders I've ever met. I mean, so she, when she said, go find $2 billion, it wasn't like sending me off to a, un, you know, like to a death mission. It was, she knew I could do this kind of work. Um, she also knew how we worked, she and I, and how she managed the company. So she gave me lots of freedom. But and I say this in the book, but she said, when you get to the point where you're nervous or the risk is bigger than you, that's reasonable, make sure you come back and talk to me. But otherwise, please go do this thing. But I'll, I'll get to the, so, you know, you do all the stuff that you normally do if you're a leader and if you're an engineer, an engineer-based leader, which is, let me understand everything. How much do we spend? Where are we spending it? Is there another, how does everybody else do it? How, do, how much do they spend? Can we do that? You know, whatever. It's called benchmarking, right? It's called benchmarking. You do that. We did all of that. We had one or two big barriers to just doing things. One was that we had a, a, a history in our company, independent of the union, where we did everything. We made everything in our machines. We, we sold everything. Everything we did, we did. That was one. And we had to kind of really change our head around that. Second, we were a unionized shop, particularly in the manufacturing organization, manufacturing and supply chain portion of the company. Now, having a union is not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but it doesn't allow you to do, having a union means that you have to collaborate continuously. <laughs> continuously. You drop the best plan in the world and literally, particularly when you're vulnerable, a strike could kill you. You know, just literally a work slowdown, uh, whatever, could kill you or the contract could say just you can't do it. What I did there, what we did there, I had a great set of people who worked with me. One guy was named was Clive Barron's, I had a whole, I had a whole great team I talk about in the book, was to literally engage the union leader, his name is Gary Bonadonna, who I liked. We, we liked each other. This was not a problem whatsoever. From a relationship standpoint, you know, a little guy from, the, from Rochester, a little girl from New York, we had a lot in common, but you know, there was no reason for us to have antagonism towards each other, except for I was on one side and he was on the other of this particular debate and discussion, which was how do we lower costs? How do, how do we do that? I ha it had to have something to do with people. Most of our costs was people. Um, 60 something percent of our costs was people. So we couldn't cut $2 billion and not touch any people. We'd have to kind of sell all the buildings, all the equipment, everything, right? You couldn't buy stationary. So we absolutely had to touch people. But in order for me to touch people, I had to get the union's agreement. So it's like going to the neighbors and saying, listen, you, you five are going to starve so that we can keep these five alive. And the union doesn't necessarily have all of the incentives to do that. This guy who I was dealing with was one of the better partners you could have in a situation like this. My approach was everything I know you're going to know. I'm going to tell you the facts. No BS, no lying. Here's the sheets. Let's go through them. Let me tell you what we're doing on just about every line. And let me tell you what that gets us to. It gets us to $500,000, right? I need $1.5 million more. Let me tell you where we can get it from. This area, this area, this area, this area, this area, of which 70% of them have to do with you. So I need you to understand this and understand that. If we don't fix this problem, we will, and it will, keep doing what we're doing, which is 100% of your people are currently employed in 
18 months, 12 months, zero of them will be employed because we'd literally be bankrupt. So please come along with me on this journey. Help me to figure, if you have better ideas, please come on because we're in this together. I remember saying to him that you and I are not the problem here. We can, we can find the job tomorrow. If literally Gary or I got fired or we left or that we that were not needed, we literally had a, a war chest that was bigger than the cleaners in the building or the assembly guys in the building. So that was better. And two, we could probably find a job. We were more mobile, et cetera. So I, we worked together because we knew that the bigger issue was the small, a smaller size with the right skill set was where we had to end up. And that, and he, once we got to that common understanding, we still had, you know, knockdown dragouts with each other at, about issues, but we never got confused that there was some other way that we could solve the problem. Let's kind of hold our breath maybe to go away. Maybe we don't have to touch any of our people. One of the stories I tell in the book, and then I'll shut up and then have you ask the next question, was he was very, very, very insistent on not touching cleaners. And it took me a while to understand this. And this was one of my best lessons. He, he knew what kind of people, I did too, but I didn't kind of, I was still doing the math at this point, who the cleaners were. These were the lowest paid union employees. These were generally immigrants from other, lots of them were women. These people cleaned our offices, you know, we did, we, we owned them. We didn't, we didn't outsource cleaning until much, much later, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the, this is the lowest rank of employee probably in our company. And we could have outsourced that in a minute and gotten a cleaning service in, you know, when these outsourced cleaning services, they would not have been unionized and their pay would have been lower, which is why we would have done it. He, he literally insisted, laid on the tracks that that was somebody, that's a group of people that you will not touch. I don't care what you do. There's a lot of other things I don't like, but this is one that's non-negotiable. Once I kind of thought about what he was doing and slowed down enough to kind of think about it, he was absolutely right. That was my mother. That cleaning person that we would have laid off was my mother in the pandemic. She didn't live to the pandemic, but I tell you what, if she lived here and somebody, her job would have stopped because she was a childcare provider in her home. There's no way that was going to continue. If she, if that's, if she were alive in the pandemic, we would have starved. We would be on the soup line because literally she had skills for very little else. She had no other source of income. She got welfare and then her little $4,000 a year that she made in childcare provision. So he was, he was, presenting to me my mother and I had to understand operationally that I made a choice that would have that cost the company money but saved I mean total distress for a group of people and the money that we saved wouldn't have been that big a deal anyway you know it, yeah yeah we were scrapping scraping for everything but it was not it was very important that we didn't take that step it was such a great collaboration and such a great lesson for me uh, Ursula, to that point, you write in the book about your own struggle with a kind of a lifetime of independence, right? Uh, that you were a very independent thinker, that you didn't actually love collaboration. You liked to work on your own and independent production of that. As you became the president and CEO, you had to challenge some entrenched preferences, mindsets in yourself to become much more collaborative. Speak to that for the millions of leaders that are listening and watching how that was a struggle for you and why it was necessary to really 
overcome that and become much more collaborative in your mindset? Yeah, my mother was fairly independent. I mean, she uh, obviously she raised us by herself. I don't think this was something that she outright taught. You know, she didn't say, unlike where you are is not who you are. She didn't say, um, don't use teams, don't 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 get married. She's, she's not that. But the example that I saw in her was someone who was who took care of themselves, themselves, and took care of those very close to them, to them, and really not kind of depending, not risking um, your future in somebody else's hands. That to an extreme is, is kind of how I lived early on. Literally, I lived, I say this, and I still do largely, in between my two ears. I don't, I can, I don't need a lot of, um, yeah, I love people, but I don't need a lot of company. I don't need a lot of interactions. I'm an introvert, very much so, even though I can hang out with people. But if I had to choose that to that, I would choose the, let's hang out in my house and kind of just. So I realized early in my, early in my career and learned that this was, this was a benefit. You know, I put my head down and did my work and I always, excelled, but every day that I kept doing that, it became more and more and more of a negative. You can get more done. You can accomplish better results, obviously. You can carry bigger weight. You can go longer. Everything about your life is better if you have people with you moving along versus then if, then if you go alone. And it took me a lot of readjusting to understand that. When I became a program manager, so I'm managing a group of people. Literally, I would, you know, I, I would say, don't worry about it, I'll, I'll do that. Don't worry about it, I'll do that. And, you know, you look at it and you see it's not moving fast enough or not the way you want, I'll do that. And I remember one a man who I worked for, his name is Waylon Hicks. He's still alive and still a good friend. He told me, he said, um, I would say to him, you know, why is this, why can't I just do this? He said, um, if you were smart enough and, and capable enough to do all the jobs, Ursula, yeah, you can do it alone, but you can't. Right, you just can't. So I had to learn that. I had to learn it in my personal life as well. I had zero examples in my personal life of men of dependence on a third, on a second party for lively for anything. Zero examples. My mother did it. And so I remember when I met my husband, who was one of the first guys I dated, ever dated. Um, when I met my husband, thinking about the fact that I'm like, I don't really need him. But imagine entering a relationship that way. But that's what I had, I had to really think hmm. outside of myself to say, you're in there. I mean, we are going to build dependence. We're purposely going to do this. This is the thing that you never did. And you, you kind of were subliminally taught to never do. But when you have a relationship or you build a team at work, you build into dependence. And that is a strength that leaders must know. I'm, I'm involved with a, a private equity firm. It's called Integrum that we just started. It's really, really cool. Myself and three other partners. And what we're finding is that we have four people who have strengths in four different areas. And we're building what I call all the time when we're trying to sell the firm, the perfect human. It takes four. It took four of us to get the perfect human. Five, six, six. <laughs> I'm good at this. That person is good at that. That person is good. at This person has empathy in that area. I have sympathy in that area. I have empathy in a different area. We put this all together. And the four of us, five or six, we'll probably get two other 
kind of partners in. This is this is what you me singularly aspire to be all knowing, all seeing, but you can't do it alone. You get to be all knowing and all seeing when you have lots of people knowing different things and seeing different things. And that's what it's all about teamwork. It took it was such a, a relief and revelation when I got there, when I had a great team, when I ran this part of the company called Business Group Operations, it was amazing. It was uh, it was different all over the place people i mean for europeans we had some brits on the team we had a korean on the team we had another black guy on the team we had uh, women on the team all over the place we were definitely if you look at us we were sloppy right we didn't dress the same we we're all over the place but almost humming and perfect talk about this in the book this is amazing and how much we could do together particularly when you got that difference and then you built it to trust right you had a great team and you built it that you trusted their abilities, you knew what they were and trusted their abilities, and you liked them. I don't mean you liked them to hang out with them. I don't mean you liked them because you know you all had the same interests. But that like the broad world, the broad and broadest way of respect was this like this comfort of being around them. We had that. I've had that a couple of times in my career. Doesn't happen all the time. It's nirvana when you get there. All and of us be shooting for it. All of us have at least one story like that, right? When it was nirvana when you had that team. Ursula, I know our time is ending. You've had an amazing journey. You've earned it. You've been the recipient, obviously, of people that believed in you and helped to lift you up and your own hard work and education and perseverance, your own maturity from being, you know, becoming very um, interdependent from an independent mindset. You also were a member of the U.S. Export Council, I think for a while, where you served as the chair. And you met yep. uh, many times in the White House during the Obama administration. And kind of off topic, you share a very interesting story about what it's like to be in the White House and how the meals work. Would you kind of recreate <laughs> that story? Because I was kind of fascinated to hear about, at least under the Obama administration, um, how delightful the meal meals are there. Share that story. Yeah, this was, we, I was, President Obama and I actually ran parallel, literally almost, you know, pa total perfect parallel paths, not only in how, you know, how beside each other, we, but how, in duration. He became president right before I became CEO. He became president when I was president of the company. He left when I, and I left, right? Just happens to happen that way. So early on in his career, he was president, brand new, he invited business leaders to the White House. And he's not a business guy. I was one, uh, the first meeting I went to, I went to a couple after that, but the first, I was one of the first ones invited, myself, Mutar Kent, Randall Stevenson, and another, per oh, David Cote, <laughs> were in this, uh, in this meeting at the, just random set of CEOs. We get a letter that we were invited, and this is like amazing for me, for all of us. My goodness, the new president, first African-American president, first, I mean, anything that looked as different as he did, uh, president. And we get in a letter that we have to have a, we have to have a credit card because, and it had to be a particular type of credit card because they didn't take them all, because we had to pay for our own meals because President Obama was very proud of the fact that he was kind of on business leaders because they got lots of, they, they, they were rich, you know, they were paid too much money and et cetera, et cetera. They flew to places on company planes and the taxpayer is really not gonna pay for these already very privileged people to eat lunch. So we're gonna go to the White House, we're gonna eat lunch and he's going to, the White House, not him, the government, is going to charge us for our lunch inside. And 
you go and you say, well, this is pretty, this is like not exactly the way I would treat guests to my house, but it didn't, <laughs> it didn't particularly matter. We went to give them the, the credit card and they basically went. I, I think that after that, they had some bankers go and they, I think they, all they got was water. At least we got a sandwich <laughs> and, some, and some soft drink. I think the bankers just got water so there was no need to pay them any, to pay any money. And it was, it was interesting. The whole event was interesting in that we were in awe of this guy who had done something that no one had ever done before. And he was fairly ordinary. I mean, he was, you know, brilliant and you, you get all that stuff, right? You know, you can see it from when you, you know, when you watch him, but he was just a pretty, he was intensely kind of engaged, but very uh, casual and comforting and <laughs> comforting, not in a personal way, but let's talk about things, you know, yes. ask a lot of questions. Let's, let's find out a way to work together. And so it, I was so lucky to be part of that early engagement and to, we didn't know each other well before the White House, um, before he became president, and to have a set of skills and interests that aligned to what the, what the country needed at the time. So I, I ran a STEM task force for him because STEM, you know, I was essentially an obvious person to do this because my life trajectory was built on STEM. Without STEM, literally, I, don't, I would have probably been successful because my mother would have done something else there, but literally, if it weren't for STEM, I would be, I wouldn't be where I was. I was sitting around the table with him. So he needed somebody to figure out a way to help the country figure out a way. How do we figure out a way to get more people engaged and interested, more young people engaged and interesting, more interested, more parents um, engaged and interested, more businesses engaged and interested in building a STEM um, infrastructure that that's powerful enough to continue to um, to fund the country's future. That was one. And the second thing I was very, very, very interested in always was trade. And I would always say this, and then I was obviously called when I, because I would say this before the Export Council, I said, it's a math problem, simple math problem. We have 300 and something million people in this country. There are seven point something billion people in the world. Even if we were lucky enough to sell everything that we made in a year to 10, the same people 10 times, 10, 10 cars to them, we could not match the power of selling our goods and services to other parts of the world. There's no way, seven and a half billion people out there, 300 million people in there right. in our country. So this idea that you don't have to trade is it's something that just is so bizarre to me. It, it just doesn't work mathematically. So I was, I was on this all the time. The Export Council is, is all about figuring out a way to get our goods and service and ideology, goods, service, and business ideology exported around the world. Ursula Burns, on behalf of all Americans, thank you for your service to our country, for the worldwide listeners. Thank you for being a model of giving voice and inspiration to so many people around the world that, that see the journey you've taken, the challenges you've overcome, the perseverance that you've uh, committed to. In fact, Franklin Covey's president, is a, a woman named Jennifer Colosimo. She's been in the firm for nearly 30 years. She lives in Denver, Colorado. And she has a picture of you 
on her vision board. This is a very accomplished woman on the board of many organizations, the president of our firm. And when she learned I was interviewing, she said, you've got to be kidding me. I have a picture of Ursula Burns on my vision board. So I want to thank you for probably the legacy. You probably don't really realize what it is you have accomplished and blazed a trail for many millions of people around the world. Thank you for your time today. Your book is Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Ursula Burns, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Scott. And thank you, uh, Franklin, for your legacy and for just building a foundation that we all learned from and continue to learn from. Ursula, we're honored that you joined us today. And thank you again for your time. We'll see you back here next week for another guest on Leadership. Mm -hmm.